Hello and welcome to this premium podcast on the evil origins of feminism, part two. I am your host, Connor, joined today in our lovely new studio by Carl. Hello. I thought this would probably be the best one to break my entrance into, into this lovely little library room here, because I think the first part was one of the most successful things I've done on the site since starting here, and obviously you being the, the nemesis of feminists, you definitely made that. Um, but over the last six months, discourse has changed a little bit. And I think it's been compounded with the stuff that you were reading with Stelios, with, with Claire Chambers' essay on comprehensive liberalism, uh, which I've been going through as well. And I think I'm, I'm almost disappointed that her line of logic is infallible within that paradigm, um, hence why it's turned liberalism into the, the solvent force of the universal acid. But also over the last six months, I've been speaking with a cohort of women specifically who have defined themselves as post-feminist or, or reactionary feminists. And these are the likes of Louise Perry, Abigail Favale, Mary Harrington, soon Nina Power, all women who have felt deserved by both the industrial and sexual revolutions, and who would like to turn back the clock on the solvent effect that liberalism has had on sexual solidarity. And they've admonished me a little bit in saying that Beauvoir, yes, is the starting point of modern materialist feminism, but it wasn't always the case and there might be a road for restitution out of that. So if the first podcast was a diagnosis of the cancer, then this is the chemotherapy, I suppose. So it's quite quite optimistic. So today we're going to be focusing on a few books, um, mainly these three. So it's Abigail Favale's rejoinder to Simone de Beauvoir, specifically in Genesis of Gender, Ivan Illich's Gender, which I have not mentioned on the website yet, and that's going to be the bulk of what we're covering, because he provides us a, a new heuristic for understanding relationships between the sexes, pre- and post-industrial revolution, and it's been quite a seismic shift to my perspective on things. And then I'm going to give Mary's book a mention as well, because um, I've done an interview with her on the website, it was fantastic, and I spoke to her and I said, oh, well, when covering your work, what would you like me to do? And she said, I think it would be best served putting it alongside people that said it far better than I did years before. So she's got, got a fair bit of humility, and so we're, we're going we're gonna to let her, her book speak as to some solutions for the, for the paradigm we're in. Just as a quick thing here, I haven't read any of these books, so uh, this this is all going to be new to me. Which is perfect, because I, I think sort of fresh exposure to the shifting lens of how to see things and, and how our contemporary moment has put us in a miserable position is pretty important. And, and I think that's really important because I think both sides are getting it wrong at the moment. Um, I've just had a piece released with, with the critic that's hitting on this, and that is that and this is going to be incendiary to some members of the audience, I'm sure, but when have I not been known for that? Uh, the red pill manosphere is a kind of sedative because it doesn't challenge the paradigm that gave birth to feminism in the first place. Yeah, it's a coping mechanism. Yes, it's, it's Darwinian pragmatism, but it doesn't escape the materialism that gave rise to feminism and split men and women from relationships of complementary subsistence into adversarial competition. And hopefully this might provide a sort of way that we can think better when criticising modernity than is currently on display from Fresh and Fit or whatever or all of these podcasts that have, have come up to cater to the righteous, I think, resentment of how things are. So let's dive into Illich. So Illich was an Austrian Catholic priest. Don't roll your eyes. Uh, and he was a critic of the Industrial Revolution. So you'll, you'll be quite happy with him. I've once described him as the Ted Kaczynski of gender. We'll see why. Um, he was born in September, on, on the 4th of September, 1926, in Austria. His family fled Nazi Germany 
1942. So he's got some parallels of Simone de Beauvoir, really. Um, her living in Nazi-occupied Paris, which gave rise to her quite resentful brand of feminism. Um, he was ordained as a Catholic priest in Rome in 1951, but he ceased publicly attend attending masses and conducting them in 1976 because he had a bit of a schism with the church over what I would characterise as their slightly more liberal leanings over time. And I think this might be something that we discussed in our Is Jesus a Socialist podcast. The slow infiltration of liberation theologists within the Vatican and other churches meant that people who were more traditional got slowly pushed out. And I think Illich might have been a victim of this, even though some former non-new leftists quite liked him because um, he was a borderline anarchist at one point. He had a really weird, interesting journey. He died on the 2nd of December 2002, so he's not still kicking about, unfortunately. He published this book, Gender, in 1983 because he wanted to say, he wanted to expose the counterfeit genealogy of sex that underlies economic history. It's a fiction needed by a sexist society that cannot face its lack of legitimate ancestry. And I wanted to include that because we're going to have a bit of a language barrier here because Illich uses language like gender and sex in very different ways than we use. And this, this plays into something that we spoke about on the podcast quite a while ago. I can't remember which segment it was, but I had tried to say that gender was not inseparable from sex. And you took the position that gender is a kind of role, that uh, a spectral mode of behaviours that can be inhabited along a continuum. Yeah, but that's not that it can be inseparable from sex. It's derived from it, but yeah, it's, it's not it's... necessarily reliant on it. No, I think it is reliant right. on it. Um, and I think that the best that a person can do is essentially LARP uh, mm. outside of their gender uh, because it is directly conceived of and tied to sex. Mm. Yeah, it, it, is, it is a spectrum of behaviours. The left are correct on that. But it's not free-floating and, and disconnected from reality. So he uses it as an, in an even more old and traditional way than the left do. And so he would even say the left's conception of how gender is a category that you can embody that's connected to your sex is not necessarily true. He would say that gender is tradition and pre-industrially it was so axiomatically true as a way of living that it never needed to be questioned. Which is, yeah, and it's, it's quite an interesting observation of how he gets there. Obviously, what happened was, because he published this and, and said that the entire paradigm of gender and sex separation and the aim towards equality between men and women was a lie, he was instantly cancelled as part of academia. Um, there was a, there's a decent quote here from an article, I think it was from New Statesman of all places, uh, Illich's intellectual celebrity collapsed, one could almost say he was cancelled, with the publication of Gender, the last of his volumes to appear with a major commercial publisher. The book, growing out of lectures at Berkeley, claimed that the modern economy of commodity circulation, where almost everything had a price, only arrived at with the overcoming of gender, which Illich defined as the division of, hum of the human world into two distinct but complementary realms. Feminists predictably went ballistic. One, a linguist denounced gender for manifesting all the salient features of modern propaganda as exemplified in classics of a genre like Mein Kampf. The tired old tropes don't exactly get retreated, do they? At the University of Marburg, where Illich often taught, professors greeted him with a giant paper mache phallus. His reputation on the left never recovered. Reminds me of when well, Michael Knowles... Once, I can't remember which university campus he went to fairly recently. I think it was a Catholic one of all things. And they built an effigy of him, burned him in the street for his lecture yeah. title, uh, Men Cannot Become Women. 
more things change, more things stay the same. So I wanted to summarize, summarize his position. So he draws a, a pretty novel distinction between gender and sex. And he says there are two modes of existence which I call the reign of vernacular gender and the regime of economic sex. By social gender, Illich means local and time-bound duality that sets off men and women under circumstances and conditions that prevent them from saying, doing, desiring, or perceiving the same thing. So it's a set of limitations which we are born inextricably into. We are not born free, we are not born equal, that is an enlightenment delusion. Um, and because of those limitations, the axioms of existence confine you in such a way which do not oppress you, do not incur upon your liberty in an oppressive way, but that they give you guidance and that you never think to question them because there is no other way of being. And so people aren't necessarily miserable, they subsist mutually. What I found interesting about that is prevent them from saying, doing and perceiving mm. the same thing. That's totally true. Uh, scientifically, that's true. I mean, women have a broader range of colour perception than men. I only learned this recently. And I, th this explains a lot about uh, women's interest in decoration well, and men's uh, lack of interest in it. But also, women perceive space differently to men, which is why the, you get the uh, the old meme of uh, women drivers and parallel parking. Grow like a girl. Not, no, 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 no. That, I mean, they are physically different in that mm. regard. But like the, the actual perception of space. And men have a, f a faster perception of movement. Uh, so men perceive movement before women perceive movement and things like this. There are, I, I, only, I only stumbled on this a couple of months ago. I was like, wow, that's genuinely fascinating that like women are, like men, men are actually physically different at two women. I mean, women have a broader range of color perceptions. And there was a there was a meme going around where there was, to me, it was basically two shades of violet that you're looking at. But women were like, obviously the different shades. And I was just like, right. I mean, I I genuinely couldn't really tell. Uh, but this is just the thing. And and I've I've in fact noticed um, spatial perception differences between myself and my wife. Uh, she built something with my sons, and I came home. And it, I looked at it, I could see just instantly it wasn't built right. So I just flipped it around and looked at it and just put the things where they need to be and suddenly it was built right. And my, it was just my wife couldn't see it. And it's just this thing where there's a genuine biological, physical difference there. It's interesting, uh, one person we've both spoken to, uh, RJ, the fourth age, has a video on that colour perception. He charted the increased inflow of female artists and editors into the comic book industry. And the movement away, obviously there were technological limitations that, that changed the amount of colours you could do, but the movement away from the kind of four-colour, primary colours, very stark art styles that you saw from the 30s right through to the 80s, to these slow-muted pastel colour tones, the, the uh, is it Calimation art style, the Californian animation that you saw on Tumblr. CalArts, yeah. CalArts, yeah. Uh, that art style plus the more muted and, and gradient colour tones. And some of that art can look really nice, but does match up with the amount of women flowing into the industry, fundamentally changing the nature of the medium. It also changes the character of the medium. Mm. Uh, comic books with superheroes are bold coloured to represent the subject matter in a masculine way. You know, that's what it's for. It's action oriented. Because uh, the, the ultimate point of every comic book is a physical confrontation, which is of course a very male thing. Except it's now the, uh, the women of Marvel that are leading it have said they want their covers to show, quote, women doing things. Again, <laughs> differences between men and women yeah. becoming yeah. manifest. Yeah, men never need to worry about that because all men do is things. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. 
Uh, Illich says, gender is in every step, in every gesture, not just between the legs. Gender is something other and much more than sex. By economic or social sex, Illich means the duality that stretches toward the illusory goal of economic, political, legal, or social equality between women and men. Under this second construction of reality, as he will show, equality is mostly fanciful. You can see why he upset the feminists with this. Under the reign of gender, men and women collectively depend on each other. Their mutual dependence sets limits to struggle, exploitation, and defeat. Under the reign of gender, women might become subordinate, but under any economic regime, they are only ever the second sex. So, interesting compliments to Beauvoir, because as we know, Beauvoir was a dogmatic Marxist, and later with Abigail Favale's critiques, we'll see that Beauvoir believed material participation, the exact kind of thing that Illich excoriates, was the only way to liberate women from their, in her words, inferior biological condition. And Illich is going, well, no, that's bollocks, frankly. You're never going to be happy doing it. Again, cancelled for observing the truth. So I wanted to break down what he means by vernacular gender here. He says, yeah. I use gender in a way to designate a duality that in the past was too obvious even to be named and is so far removed from us today that it's often confused with sex. By sex, I mean the result of a polarization in those common characteristics, starting with the late 18th century that are attributed to all human beings. Sex can be discussed in the unambiguous language of science. Gender bespeaks a complementarity that is enigmatic and asymmetrical. Only metaphor can reach for it. The, dominant, the transition from the dominance of gender to that of sex constitutes a change to the human condition that is without precedent. So, it is rooted, obviously, in the biological differences between men and women. But those biological differences are not the primary mode of, of definition. It's, it's not that we're abstract universal categories, something that you were speaking to Josh about in his contemplations on the limitations of science. It's that gender is an embedded, embedded, embodied, culturally played out and inherited metaphor for how men and women work and live in daily life. And it is, it is rooted in sex, but it's not so stark that we're, we're thrown into contrast because of um, some sort of flashpoint changing material conditions. It's that we just complementarily work alongside each other as a given axiom of existence. And so we're not these universal abstractions. We are people in a time and a place. Yeah. Um, obviously, one example he gives are tools. And this is something I just found quite interesting that I didn't really think of before, but it's because we're so distant from this kind of agricultural economy that you don't necessarily... Again, as well, like when I've done bricklaying or digging before I've worked here. You're always working around men. You're always using the same tools. Women don't have their own specific tools anymore because all our tools, specifically in the in the information economy, are unisexed. Mm. And, and anyone can do any interchangeable knowledge economy yeah, sure. job. In all pre-industrial societies, a set of gender-specific tasks is reflected in a set of gender-specific tools. Even tools that are for common use can be touched by only half the people. By grasping and using a tool, one relates primarily to the opposite gender. Separate toolkits determine the material complementarity of life. And he cites how uh, men's sickles, when you were going out in the field, were, were clean-edged for cutting, and women's were indented and curved and had different handles made for the gathering of the stalks. Do you not remember, there was a, a few years ago an article, they, I th I'm sure it was about a woman complaining about mice, as in the, the mouse from right. the computer, they're too big for a hand. It does make sense. It's been designed for men. Yeah. So, like, the tool actually... Uh, is a male tool because it was made for men by men uh, with the expectation it'd be men using it without even thinking about it. So they made the mouse just to fit a man's hand and the women were like, well, hang on a second. The interesting thing is though, and, and this is something we'll, we'll get onto, this is, this is Mary's critique later of the, 
the cyborg theocratic forces that go from making the external tools accommodating to men and women doing the same job to making our internal tools unisexed so we can have equal opportunities for participation in the market. Um, that, that is a noble goal to accommodate people's different hand sizes, but then when you are aiming for the eradication of difference for equality, there is the perverse incentive to turn that tech inwards and make us all the same. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's what I think Illich was very much ahead of his time about because again he was he was in the eighties well before the transgender craze that has taken over and it's very prescient as to how and and this is this is something that that is a compliment to your discussion with Stelios on on Claire Chambers' essay. It's not just ideas. It's it's not just the um, hypothetical pursuit of autonomy as the only and highest goal. It's also how technological innovation works in tandem to that to become the enabling condition for that kind of Rousseauian atomization of material abundance, but also being really lonely. But no notice how this fits in perfectly with the critiques of industrial society, mm. which is that the system will change man to suit the system, and the system won't change itself to suit man. Yeah. We've the, all of these critiques harmonize on this point. Yeah, and this is this is what I think the phrase market forces is used and it sounds a bit abstract or even borderline Marxist but there is a sensible way of understanding that the solvent effect that individualizing GDP line go up only focus on productivity can have on our relationships both to ourselves our own bodies and to others. Well we've taken a, a higher value than the welfare of human beings mm. and so if the welfare of human beings and the line going up contradict then the human being must be the thing that changes. Yes. Yeah. This is this is the current climate lobby. You are the carbon they want to reduce. It's that simple. That's the logic that leads you to it from from the position of the universe, which we never actually hold. Yeah. Which is and so th this is why we have like nudge theory in government mm. now, where the government's like, okay, we want to slowly but surely change human behaviour. In doing so, change the humans. Mm. So eventually, we'll all become the bug men, and we'll be happy for it. Yeah, I question I question the level of happiness, but I think they're quite apathetic well, to it. Well. Um, you can question it, but it's definitely going to happen because, I mean, a poodle doesn't want to be released into the wild, but the wolf is looking at the poodle and saying, yeah, but you're, you're, you're imprisoned. Mm. And the poodle's like, yeah, sure, but I'm also like a Bed. foot tall. Yeah. And, you know, I don't really want to go through what you four foot tall, 300 pound wolf has to go through because you're properly equipped for it and I'm not. So the bug man will learn to love his servitude in the same way that the poodle will learn to love their servitude. Mm, in the same way that gender inhibited people from never questioning any other way of thinking, being, or perceiving, this will be such a such a limitation that you won't, other than an outsider like a John the Savage, yeah. you won't ever know what other way you could be. Yeah, and you, you, you won't be physically equipped for the other way because the industrial society will have crafted you into the bug man that it needs you to be for the system to sustain itself. Oh, there's a, there's a great book actually written called Primate Change by an academic I took a course from at university, um, Vibar Krieg and Reed, and he does an anthropological study of how the Industrial Revolution has maladapted us evolutionarily in such a short time frame compared to how many years before. And he's just looking at rates of osteoporosis and rheumatoid arthritis and, and autoimmune conditions. And he's just saying, well, we've been inhaling you know, toxic smog for ages. There's lead in there, which can lead to high rates of crime. When they took that out of petrol fumes, yeah. it dropped. Just the way our chairs are constructed are, are non-ergonomic, and it's giving us a, a posterior tilt that 
puts our stomachs down and makes us look fatter. Like, what are we doing to ourselves? We are literally physically transforming ourselves to become these urbanized pod people, to be battery farmed for the elite. Yep. I don't blame Illich for being mad about that. I'm, I'm, I'm slowly being swayed, you know. It's not um, just him. There are loads of people who have been like, hang on, this is not good. But yeah, anyway. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go down the TED route of, of putting things in the post. But, but no, we, can, we can be reasonably critical. So he's, he harps on the Industrial Revolution. And he says that historians have overlooked the fact that gender is equally dominant in all historical periods, constitutive of all urban civilizations, and basic to simple commodity production. And non-urban non civilizations as well. Yes, yeah. And they have a far longer track record than yeah. current urbanization. Uh, if its rule was relaxed, this happened only among decadent elites, and then only for short periods. Only the rise of commodity-intensive industrial society has led to the loss of gender. Honestly, I put the loss of the, the ability to even question this stuff, I think is arises from birth control, frankly. It's, it, it makes the whole thing possible. Because in every previous civilization, the fact of pregnancy was such a domineering uh, state of affairs that women simply couldn't allow it. You have stumbled on Mary's conclusion. Well, that's, she's right. Yeah. Then. But I, it's, it seems that that is what has happened. There you go, Mary. You can clip that. Well done. It, it seems that's what's <laughs> happened. And the fact that women can willingly avoid pregnancy mm. and yet still engage in the behaviours that would otherwise lead to pregnancy has changed everything about civilization. That's what gender equality really means at, at base. Mm. They, they can engage in promiscuous behaviours like men and not suffer the consequences. Yeah, but obviously as well, and this is something that, that, that Reed and Illich are saying, is that we're fooling ourselves in thinking we can eradicate a longer period of evolution and cultural integration by technological intervention. Because even though you may be able to flip your endocrine system mm. and, and turn your fertility off temporarily with horrible consequences long term as we're as we're slowly finding out it doesn't mean that your oxytocin pair bonding system no, no, there's your... all sorts of negative consequences that come from it yeah and and so we are selling both men and women uh, a lie of both the industrial and sexual revolutions and it's not until as he says in there the decadent elites that only yeah. benefit from from this the knowledge class people the people that want to turn transgenderism into transhumanism you for, format themselves as they so wish it's not until that technology reaches a stage where they're happy and they can reformat us plebs who are being battery farmed into servitude that that this will be dealt with but until then there's a lot of disaffected and sad people that are, are suffering the transition stage we pardon the pun for the historian who looks at the past in a rearview mirror, sickle and scythe are but local farm tools once used in the harvest, replaced by techniques when modernization occurs. But Illich asks, what did the woman lose with the sickle? What else went with the scythe that he had to give up? It's the Chesterton's fence approach to, okay, well, with technological progression, what are you eradicating on the local level? Are you atomizing ourselves, estranging us from the social bonds that gave life such meaning? So with vernacular gender, this is his term, so it's a bit esoteric, but he says, he uses the word vernacular to delineate gender from sex, just as vernacular speech, into which we grow through daily intercourse with people who speak their own minds, is distinct from what he calls taught mother tongue. We acquire this through professional delegation who are employed to speak to and for us. They create something called key words. So vernacular dis designates a distinction in behavior, a distinction universal in vernacular cultures. It distinguishes places, times, tools, tasks, Forms of speech, gestures, and perceptions associated with men from those associated with women. This association constitutes social gender. It is specific to a time and place. I call it vernacular gender because this set of associations is as particular to a traditional people as their vernacular speech. 
we should consider vernacular gender as the foundation of ambiguous complementarity. So working in tandem while never necessarily understanding each other, but being kind of reconciled to that difference. And the sex of economic neuters as the modern experiment to deny or transcend this foundation. And so he lays the, the taught mother tongue, the, the key words that reprogram our way of thinking, at the feet of the same elite who have, for short amounts of time, suspended those uh, gender segregations, and in the present are using technology to reformat it for their benefit at the detriment of the rest of us who are at the bottom of the hierarchy. Keywords are a characteristic of taught mother tongue. They're even more effective than the mere standardization of vocabulary and grammatical rules in their repression of vernacular, because having the appearance of common sense, they put a pseudo-vernacular gloss on engineered reality. I have found the paramount characteristic of keywords in all languages is their exclusion of gender. Now, the reason I've included that is because this is a critique that both Michael Knowles and you have hit upon with the current trans debate. And that is that Matt Walsh's documentary, What is a Woman, is excellent for exposing the nonsense at the heart of the gender debate, how it's how it corrupted, ideologically propagandized, mutilated and castrated children to, to horrific degrees. But it's thin. It's conceptually thin. Adult human female is a universalized, abstract, linguistic key word. It does not have any rich, thick, um, metaphorical or, in, in the Avolan conception, transcendent depth. It also, it also doesn't have sufficient descriptive power. Mm. It doesn't describe everything about a woman. Mm. It doesn't describe everything about what it is to be a woman in civilization. I mean, I really like this vernacular gender concept um, because one of the, one of the uh, canards that the feminists will come out with is like, well, why, you know, why are men and women's roles differently characterized in different civilizations? For example, in English civilization, women have always been relatively well respected mm. and expected to be agents of their own. Whereas if you look at like a Saudi civilization, Arab civilization, women have to walk like 10 feet behind their husbands. When walking, that's, you know, for me, that's abominable, but I yep. can see that that is a woman's role in that society. That's what he's getting at. There's a vernacular difference there that you've just grown up with. It's been a natural part of the culture and you've not had to be taught it. And that, that's a really good way of distinguishing it because it not only, like say, localizes it, but it begins to, it sets the groundwork to encompass the, the superstructure of what it is to be a woman in that time and place and in that context, rather than just being, as you said, the thin universal of an adult human female. It's not enough. Yeah, that's why Michael Knowles has since gone on to say, well, what is a woman? Actually, it's, it's closer to say sugar and spice and all things nice than it is adult human female, which I think is quite funny and quite pithy, but he is getting at something something true there, especially yeah. from the perspective of men. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, they have a they have a they have a they round off our edges in in many a way, which is why, again, I understand the, the hostilities of the modern manosphere against things like divorce courts. Oh, they're totally right. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're vindicated on that. Unbelievable amount of injustice yeah. happens but, towards men. But also to transpose that onto woman as an entity and think you're gonna get out of the current state we're in without getting women on side i think yeah. is short-sighted yeah. and, and i think you're allowing resentment to get the better of you in that case um and just as a quick thing that i don't i don't blame these men who have been so mistreated for no. feeling that way it's it's understandable in the same way that i don't blame a woman who has been raped for hating men i don't blame them you know I, i'm not surprised that they feel that way it doesn't serve you long term. Exactly, it's not going to solve the problem. That's the, that, it's a defense mechanism. 
not a solution. Yeah, and that's what I'm hoping this elucidates. Yeah. Uh, so the technical keyword distinction came from vernacular gender because the Industrial Revolution threw us into quite stark contrast where we hadn't been before. Um, women could participate less in economic roles than they could when the relationship between the sexes of what was one of household subsistence. So women were often capable of processing raw materials, making food for the household, selling the rest at market on certain market days. There would be a community aspect to that. They would go and gather water from the well and interact with the same people. There would be a, a thick social texture. And that would be their domain, particularly in England, where you would be respected. You would, you would defer not just gossip, but the maintenance of appropriate moral reputations between people would be the domain of women where they're working socially. And also they'd be able to balance motherhood with work in the home, um, something like balancing a baby on one knee and looming with a spinning wheel on the other to create clothes directly for the family, or then again, sell the rest off in future. So most of the economy was not this national global market, and it was not directly oriented towards GDP line go up. It was not capital generating for capital generating. It was so, actually oriented towards human need. Exactly, yeah. And it, it catered to the immediate people that you had immediate concerns about. So there was, there was a direct accountability rather than this abstraction of being a participant in the nebulous market. So Illich says, I argue that the loss of vernacular gender is the decisive condition for the rise of capitalism and a lifestyle that depends on industrially produced commodities. And when he means capitalism, he doesn't mean the Marxist conception of capitalism. He just means the translation from the economy from one of subsistence to generating capital for its own sake. And I think, and this is something we've touched upon with the unanimous uh, role of men and women in the knowledge economy. I think you get the inverse of this in the rise of the Dino. So this is the reintroduction of sex specification, but facilitated by technology in a market where sex could be not less not, not less relevant. So the man and woman in the Dino couple, Dino and Mr. Fiat 500, they go off to their same job, sat behind a desk, they do calls or sales or consulting, and they come back home to their Barrett New Build. And in their home, they are hyper-real artifices of masculinity and femininity. Yeah. He's always got his arms on show. He's got tattoos despite never being in prison she's or the Navy. Makeup. She's wearing a low-cut top. She's got plastic breasts or plastic bum. And sometimes this can actually adversely augment the reproductive functions of those organs. So all of their expression of their sex characteristics is sterile. It's non-functional. Inauthentic. Yeah, and it could not be less relevant to the work that they're doing yeah. And it's because they're not subsisting on each other as well, because they're all reliant on debt and they're just consuming mutually together. Isn't that interesting how um, even when presented with the opportunity for perfect gender equality, in fact, they go out of their way to inauthentically reproduce gender differences. Mm. And it's, okay, well, the substructure doesn't support me being a big muscular masculine guy. The substructure doesn't support you being a hyper-feminine woman. But we're going to work on it, spend our free time going to the gym, lifting weights, caking with makeup, you know, losing weight, make sure, you know, your 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 waist is as thin as possible in order to maintain the illusion yeah. of gender differences. Because in their heart of hearts, that's what they desire. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.